Before I get started, I wanted to call up uh, Joe, and he's going to bring his uh, service dog, Ballard, with him. And he's going to give us a little uh, explanation of who Ballard is and what Ballard does, and maybe a little bit of etiquette on how to interact with Ballard. So, You want the mic? I don't think I could talk right. loud enough, I hope. Here, Ballard, sit. It's supposed to turn around, it's supposed to turn that way. <laughs> okay, first of all, I want to thank everybody for letting me share my story, okay? Uh, I think it's very important for me to explain what Ballard does because we come to this church every week and I have a lot of questions that are always asked. So if I tell a lot of people, it eliminates a lot of questioning, you know, for the dog. Um, for your information, I was kind of surprised when I saw that. There's 61 million Americans live with a disability. That's, um, I can't even imagine that many people that have problems. We all do at one way or another. If you don't, God bless you, but you'll have a problem when you get older like us, okay? Um, the dog's name is Ballard, okay? He's half golden retriever half lap. Which part? I don't know. Bottom half, <laughs> front half, whatever. But that's what he was breed of. Uh, he's going to be eight years old in April. And I've been his handler for five and a half years. So he's been with me a while. Uh, my service dog, Ballard, is trained to alert me, that's his job, to important sounds in the environment such as doorbells, telephone, refrigerator, alarm clock, timers, smoke alarm, when I drop my keys, those are the type of things he alerts me with, which is very important because I don't hear those high frequency sounds, the lower ones, okay? Uh, he alerts me when it's mealtime, which is probably his important job, okay? Because he gets food for the reward of letting me know it's dinner time, breakfast, or whatever. Uh, he's allowed to go anywhere that I go, such as the movie theaters, hospitals, restaurants, airlines, cruise ships, sporting events, anything. Okay, he goes with me. That's the law that he's allowed to go. He's highly professionally trained, and he specialized in to be safe in the environment that I go. He doesn't bark, he doesn't growl. He does. That's the funny thing about a dog. All dogs bark. I can't get this dog to bark. It's just amazing, he just does not bark. So I can't tell him quiet, you know? <laughs> he came from Companion, K9 Companion, the largest provider of service dogs with people with disabilities. Ballard's trained over 45 commands this dog knows. And actually, I think he's up to around 50. You can train him for whatever your needs are or whatever you want him to do. Uh, he has about eight to 10 sign language commands. So he knows sign language. While I'm in church, you'll notice I'm giving him a couple of signs to lay down, sit, stuff. That dog knows that. Then he does it right now, okay? Uh, and along with all the sounds, 
it enhanced my independence. It's just, I'm blessed to have it. Amen. The best part is that Ballard, Ballard and all canine companion dogs, they're completely free of charge. These dogs are $50,000 dogs. It's amazing how expensive they are. This is their veterinarian, their food, their professional training. It goes on and on and on. They do a training for about a year. So fix two years for me to get the dog. So if you're thinking about it, put in the paperwork. You can always tell them no, but you can't tell them yes unless they ask you. Okay? One thing I really want to emphasize is basically why I'm up here today with service dogs. Do not pet any service dog out there that you see in the public. Always ask the handler, may I pet your dog? Because the reason behind that is it's not that I'm rude. No, you can't touch the dog and stuff. Because everybody wants to pet the dog. The reason why, it distracts the dog. When you distract my dog, he's not listening to my commands. He's not taking care of my needs. So that's why I ask you do that. <coughs> Back on the table, on your way out, I left a lot of brochures. Because you probably can't remember what I talked about. They have a lot of different dogs. They got five different kinds of dogs up in Santa Rosa where these dogs come from. So if you're thinking about it, take one. If you don't need a dog, bless you, but play it forward. Give it to somebody. They say, wait a minute, I know a guy that has a dog and it's been wonderful. So thank you. I appreciate that. When I uh, first asked Joe to do that, I didn't think about it, but this morning I realized the error of my ways. Now I have to follow a dog. How do you follow a dog? That's <laughs> not going to work. It's not going to work. Uh, Joe uh, mentioned something in the first service that I, I thought was interesting. Um, when Ballard alerts him, what he does is he comes over and he pokes him with his nose. And then Joe says, what? And then Ballard will actually take him to the source of the sound so he can figure out what's, what's going on there. So uh, very highly intelligent, very trained dog, and uh, we're happy to have him here. <laughs> All right. So, good morning. morning. You probably wonder why I always say good morning. That's how I start my recording. So, if you go and listen to every one of them, good morning, good morning, good morning. So, good morning, and we're going to be in 1 Samuel 31 today. It's a bittersweet day for me. Uh, It really kind of feels like a good friend is moving away. We're going to say goodbye to 1 Samuel. We've been in this book since Father's Day of last year. I wasn't going to mention it, but I mentioned it in the first service, and so if I did it there, I have to do it here, too. Does anybody remember the sports analogy that I used in that very first sermon? It was a very important sport, one of the most key sports in the, in, in the world. Cheese rolling. Remember cheese rolling? They take that big old block of Gloucester, and they throw it down the hill, and everybody chases after it? Cheese rolling. It's coming back in June. I know you're all excited, but uh, try to stay focused. Don't worry. It'll be there. Cheese rolling. Today we're going we're gonna to bid farewell to ancient Israel and the budding uh, monarchy that has been forming under God's watchful eye. Next week we'll fast forward about a thousand years and jump into the book of Romans, into a new kingdom, a kingdom of priests, as Revelation 1.6 says. But we won't be able to forget 1 Samuel. In fact, in our very first passage in Romans, guess who gets mentioned? David. 
And every time we're reading the New Testament and we read David's name or, or Samuel's name, it will be like a warm hello from a friend from past times. And we will remember the lessons that we learned in 1 Samuel. We will remember God's chesed or his loyal love. We will remember how God answered a little obscure Israelite woman named Hannah and honored her prayer for a son in ways that she could never imagine that son would change Israel and the course of history, for that matter. And we were reminded of the times that the Israelites and their king tried so many times to do it their way, as if they were more knowledgeable than the omniscient God that cared for them. We'll remember the lessons that we learned about God's character as he defends and he watches over his children, like he defended and protected David. And in remembering those things, we will, like David did last week, strengthen ourselves in the Lord. It is for this reason that Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. For today, though, we have some unfinished business. The narrator gave us a very interesting story about a king named Saul who sought counsel from a, a medium or a witch at Endor. And here Saul learns from the spirit of Samuel that his time has come. In less than 24 hours, Saul and his sons will be with Samuel in Sheol. And if you remember, the woman who called up Samuel finally convinced Saul to have a meal. She said, have a piece of bread, right? And then she killed a fattened calf and made all sorts of stuff and it's the kind of bread we all want, right? She made a feast fit for a king, for a king that was not fit to be king. And then that narrator played some dirty pool. As we left Saul, he walks into the darkness of night. The narrator jumps back in time, and then we're with David now. And the last two Sundays, we've, we've been with David as he was almost made to fight Israel. And, and then the last week, we saw him return to the burnt-up Ziklag. And while last week we were heartened to see the amazing victory that God gave David and his men, this week the air leaks out of the Chinese spy balloon and all Israel is left afloat. <laughs> Some people watch the news. So let's see what happens. We're going to read uh, 1 Samuel 31. We're starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malekshua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavy against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. And the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, with those who were beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. 
came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. He put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth. They fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted for seven days. May God add his blessing of understanding to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at the the final book here in 1 Samuel, it looks dark. Like this morning on the way to church, it was dark and cloudy and ugly. Lord, we know that this story is just a stepping stone in the stories of all of the Old Testament that prepare us for the coming of your Son. Like when the clouds parted in between the services and that sun came out and it was glorious and warm, Lord, your Son, Jesus, came here to save all that would believe. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time together. Please instruct us, teach us. We will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The father of modern chemistry was a gentleman by the name of Antoine Lavoisier. He was a French nobleman and a chemist. Some of his accomplishments include the discovery of the role that oxygen plays in combustion and recognizing and naming oxygen and hydrogen. He helped construct the metric system and predicted the existence of silicon. He was also the first to establish that sulfur was an element. Along with being a chemist, he was a powerful member of a number of aristocratic councils and an administrator in, of the uh, firm General. When the French Revolution began in 1789, he chose to stay in France instead of going abroad. At the height of the French Revolution, he was accused of selling adulterated tobacco. In May of 1794, he was guillotined. Upon his death, his contemporary Joseph Louis Laurent committed, commented, excuse me, it took them only an instant to cut off that head, and a hundred years may not produce another like it. There is something tragic about someone with great promise that is cut off early. As we listen to this passage this morning, I hope you remember how this whole king thing started. Israel decided they wanted a king, like the nations around them. And their thought was that they had a king, he could lead them and protect them, particularly from the Philistines. And remember, when Saul was first picked, he stood head and shoulders above the rest of the Israelites. He was the perfect specimen for what Israel thought they needed. And Samuel reluctantly and with instruction from the Lord made Saul king, but he reminded the people and warned them in 1 Samuel 12, 25. He tells them, if you do not obey the commands of the Lord, both you and your king will be swept away. And so, as we spent the last several chapters watching as Israel and her king devolved to the point where Saul ordered the wholesale slaughter of the priests at Nob, including the high priest, we understand that we've learned from the character of God and the fact that what he says 
always happens. And so with that, we get verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. It's a terse battle report. It's, it's written the way that Hebrew battle narrative uh, is usually written. Right? We get an overview of the battle. This is what happened. And then we'll zoom in for some details. And what an overview it is. Utter defeat. But remember, we talked last week, the battle lines were drawn up in a, in a huge valley, a flat plain. And the Philistines were using the equivalent of, a, of an M1A1 main battle tank. Right? They were using chariots. And as the battle goes, those chariots overwhelm the Israelites where, to the point where they have to flee to more rocky terrain to, to get away from the chariots and hoping to escape. But the retreat fails. And we get the terrible news of verse 2. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malik Shua, the sons of Saul. Now we don't know much about Abinadab, and we don't know much about Malakshua, but Jonathan, we know that name. Jonathan, the young warrior who turned the tide of a, of a previous engagement with the Philistines. When he and his armor bearers, he, they scaled those cliffs. Remember, they were called uh, slippery and jagged, and they slew the Philistine garrison at the top. Jonathan, that young warrior who said those powerful words of faith in Yahweh in 1 Samuel 14, 6, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord has, is not restrained to save by many or by few. Jonathan, who spoke up for David, who protected David and strengthened David with the promises of the Lord, has fallen. And at first read through, the question might strike us, why? Why waste such a beautiful, God-honoring life? Why couldn't Jonathan be king instead of Saul? Why did Jonathan, who by account, by all accounts, did everything God's way, why did he have to die? Part of my sadness of leaving 1 Samuel is the joy that I had in reading a commentary by an author named uh, Dale Ralph Davis. He had uh, he's a very amazing way of drawing out very biblical observations from 1 Samuel. And I read you this back when we, when we looked at chapter 14, but that was forever ago, so I thought it profound enough to read again. He said this about what we would call the tragedy of Jonathan. Speaking of the question why, such questions are normal. They are also revealing. They reveal to us in the 20th to 21st century citizen of the Western culture that we have imbibed. In our minds, self-fulfillment is a right. We, if we have ingenuity and discipline, our efforts should be crowned with success. Should we be of a religious bent, we will happily acknowledge that God or Jesus assists us in our quest. One can always use such help, right? But Jonathan, he seemed to know better. The kingdom was not Saul's or Jonathan. It was Yahweh's kingdom. For Jonathan, then, the kingdom was not his to seize, not his to rule, but his to serve. Maybe the tragic life isn't tragic if it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances he gives us. I'll admit there have been times in my life where Mr. Davis has me pegged, where I cried out to God in frustration. I'm working hard here. 
I'm doing all the things my Sunday school teachers and my youth leaders and my pastor tell me to do. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm trying to follow your commands. And yet, I'm still in a fight here. My life still remains a battlefield strewn with struggle. I deserve better than this. Better than your daily bread. Because I work hard. Maybe the most important thing I can do in my life is choose to serve Christ despite what I am going through, no matter the circumstance. Jesus spoke of this attitude in Luke 12, verse 4, when he told his apostles, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And this is precisely what Jonathan's last battle showed us. His last testament displayed that he was unafraid of those that would kill his body, but he feared the one who had authority to cast him into hell. That life, my friends, is no tragedy. Well, with Saul's three sons killed, we see the battle presses on in verse 3. It goes heavily against Saul. The archers stood him. He's badly wounded. You could run up the mountain to get away from the chariots, but in doing so, your back is turned. Your shield is in front of you now, and you're exposed. And those archers were just picking them off as they were trying to run up the mountain. Saul is badly wounded by those fateful archers or arrows, and he says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through it. Otherwise, they will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. This wasn't Saul being melodramatic. The the Near East tradition at that point in time was if you found the enemy king, you would mutilate them, you would torture them, you would make that death go as long as you possibly could. But his armor bearer wouldn't do it. He would not strike down the Lord's anointed. Saul had a habit of picking armor bearers that listened to God, didn't he? So Saul takes out his sword and he falls on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul had done it, he did it. And we get that verse 6. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. The last testament of Jonathan was one of servitude to Yahweh. And Saul's last testament is the taking of his own life. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. You know where we get that from? That phrase, oh how, oh, how the mighty have fallen. It actually comes from the next chapter. You see, Samuel is, is one book. We've split it up in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, but it was one book. And so if you fast forward one chapter into 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see that, that while Saul and his sons were uh, in the army there, were, were dying on Mount Gilboa, David was achieving success down in Ziklag. And as they returned back home and were rebuilding, a messenger comes to them three days after the battle and says, Saul has fallen, Jonathan has fallen, and the army is defeated. And David and his men, they tear their clothes and they, they cry out and they fast till evening. And then David sings a dirge for Saul and Jonathan. It starts in verse 19 of 2 Samuel uh, chapter 1, and it goes like this. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, where the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. 
O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offering. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than that, than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. As the army is routed, Saul and his sons are killed. There, there's people watching the battle from afar. This, like I said, it was a huge valley, so there were people across the river that, flew, that uh, flowed through there. And they were looking out, and they would have been very obvious that the Israelite army was now defeated. And they realized that their, their shield was gone now. They had nothing in between them and the Philistines. And so rather than becoming victims of the war, they became refugees, and they fled their towns. And now the Philistines will take over those cities. And then in verse 8, we see that the, the next day, the Philistines are going through the battlefield, and they're stripping the, the slain. They're taking armor and swords and reinforcing themselves. And they come across Saul and his three sons. They cut off his head and strip his weapons and sent them to the land of the Philistines to carry the good news. That's gospel. It's the same thing, good news, gospel. It was the Philistine gospel, and they, they sent it to their, their house of idols and people, and they took Saul's weapons and they put them in the temple of Ashtaroth. And they took their bodies and put them on a wall there at Bashan. In Chronicles, there's a parallel pa uh, passage that actually tells us they took the head of Saul and they placed it in the temple of Dagon. They were still ticked off about that whole Ark versus Dagon thing. You remember when they, they captured the Ark and they stuck it in the temple of Dagon and the idol fell over and they put it back up and it fell over again and the arms were broken and the head was cut off. This is where they took it and they, they put the head in there. The Philistines placed Saul's head there to say, you may have toppled our idol, but we killed your king. Our way is the right way. We have figured it out, and your God is powerless to protect your king. You see, they understood something that the casual reader of, of 1 Samuel doesn't. That, that these battles involved, yes, men, but ultimately it was a fight against Israel's God. The world's fight against God's way against God's design. And the Philistines' gospel was one that said, God's ways are not our ways. His designs are not ours. And look, see the head of your king? The king that proclaimed your God, it's in our temple now. We were right. This is, in essence, what life outside of Christ today is proclaiming. In our schools, on our televisions, and in the marketplace. The Philistine gospel is alive and well. Look to us, they say. We have figured it out. We're not under that oppressive, patriarchal, misogynistic God you serve. No, look to us. Your God is nowhere to be found. And look at the wonderful things that we've created opposed to your God. You can be 
one of a million different genders. You can engage in sexual behavior with whomever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want. You can divorce those that you don't love anymore for no reason other than you just don't like them. You can riot and steal and kill to get what you want. You can rid yourself of that baby if it's an inconvenience to you. Because we were right. And we have the head to prove it. This is a battle that both then and now is a battle against light and dark. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. They understood that. Hopefully we do too. And with that, we say goodbye to Saul. And the failure of the, the first king of Israel is completed. And if the story ended there, this would be a really depressing passage, right? I mean, pretty sad. But the narrator takes a little bit of mercy on us. And he ends with an extreme act of kindness there in verses 11 through 13. We see the, the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. We remember um, when Saul was first made king, he wasn't really accepted yet. They made him king, but there were a lot of people that were like, eh, I don't know. And there was a, a, an Ammonite who was threatening the, these cities, and one of them was Jabesh Gilead. And he, he surrounded the city, and he said, uh, come out and surrender. And they said, we'll surrender. And he said, and I'll take your right eye out. So they sent sent messages for help, and Saul heard about it, and he rallied all of Israel, and they came and defeated the Ammonites and saved this town. Well, now the inhabitants of of Jabesh Gilead there hear of Saul's fall and his son's fall, and they hear of what the, the Philistines have done to their bodies. And all the valiant men rose and walked all night. And the just to put this in perspective, that would have been about a 10 to 15 mile one-way walk through Philistine-infested land to this city wall, which was surely guarded, and took the bodies down and then walked 10 to 15 miles back. They were truly valiant. And they burned them there. That's not normal. They usually didn't burn bodies, but I can only imagine the state of decomposition and, and mutilation it probably was best to, to burn them. And they took their bones and they buried them under a tamarisk tree. And we remember the tamarisk tree that, that Saul used to sit under with his spear, right? And he would rule from there. He would make decisions from there. And now he's buried there. As First Samuel closes, we see a darkened future for Israel. With their army in ruins and their villages occupied and their king dead, we find the Israelites right back where they were in chapter 8 when they first demanded a king. They're occupied by the Philistines. They're unwilling to accept God's leadership. That's why I titled this sermon, The End? Question mark, Because that's kind of what it feels like to us. And certainly, to the average Israelite living in the land at that time, it definitely would have felt like the end. And we might say, well, don't worry, We have David in the wings. He'll step up and everything will be better. Well, David does eventually become king. If you remember, there's still a civil war that has to happen in order for David to become king, but he will become king. But here's the kicker. 
David will fail to deliver too. And many other kings after him will fail to deliver. If you remember, when Samuel was grieved when the Israelites demanded a king, God said to Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. Because man's plan was to get the right guy for the position. The Israelites were always looking for someone to deliver them, whether a judge or a prophet or a king. They were looking to find that perfect mixture of brains and brawn, like, like Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Einstein. Put them together, and all of our problems will be solved. But that isn't and never was God's plan. The whole Old Testament is about God bringing his plan to fruition. It's been about the true king, the king that, yes, will be slain, but three days later, that king will come back to life. And the power of death will be crushed. And there will be a way for mankind to have fellowship with Yahweh again. This is what Jesus explained to the men on the road to Emmaus. When he walked with them and he proved from the Old Testament that the whole time that Israel was looking forward to that right guy, God was unveiling his master plan. The death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus Christ. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper today, I hope the lessons that we learn from 1 Samuel will stick with you in your walk with Christ. Lessons about God's character, his chesed, and how he watches over his children. But most importantly, I hope you take the lesson with you that what God says will happen, will happen. We celebrate that truth with the, the Lord's Supper. Jesus has told us He will return, and it will happen. And we are to celebrate this supper in anticipation of his return. Not in a, gee, I hope it happens, but in a first Samuel. God said it will happen, so it will happen kind of way. I'm going to pray now. And as I'm praying, if the deacons would come forward so we can share the Lord's Supper. But I I just want to pause for a second and say this meal is a meal... uh, specifically for believers. If you're here with us today and you don't know this Jesus or this God that I've been talking about, you don't know him, you don't have a relationship with him, let the plate pass for today. As we sing the last song after the Lord's Supper, I'll stay up here for a bit. And if you want to know him, if you want to know that Jesus, if you want to learn about God's chesed or his loyal love for those who believe in him, Come down and talk to me. I'd love to share Jesus with you. I hope that the, the lessons that we've learned from 1 Samuel will stick with us. I hope that we understand that all through the New Testament, as they're going through the New Testament, as the apostles are writing these things down, they fully expected their audience to know the Old Testament by heart. They wouldn't say, go to 1 Samuel 31. They would just say what was in 1 Samuel 31 and expect that those people would know it. And so I hope that we know it. And I hope that we're growing in our knowledge every day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for 1 Samuel. It's been such an amazing journey through your book. Lord, I pray that those lessons would stick with us. And as we move into the New Testament, we will remember that we can't have the New Testament without the Old Testament. 
that the Old Testament was, was just all about preparing for the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Lord, we pray now as, as we celebrate your, your supper, the Lord's Supper, that we would take this time to reflect, that we would take this time to uh, look back on the, the previous weeks, that we would examine ourselves, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to look back at, at how we are becoming more Christ-like or our sanctification. And Lord, if we look back and, and our heads hang, but sometimes they do, Lord, encourage us, please. As we've seen you watch over David, even when he chose the wrong thing, you watched over him. Lord, help us to strengthen ourselves in you. Help us to seek your promises. Because what you say will happen, will happen. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.